Hey everyone and welcome to this new episode of Security Headline. I'm your host Philip and I will be your guide throughout this episode. If you ever used a Unix-based operating system such as FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, Linux or something similar, I'm sure you stumble upon the man pages. One of the authors of Mandoc, which is a tool of formatting man pages, is Christoph, a longtime OpenBSD user, author of Acme Client, OpenRSync, KCGI and a lot more software which we're hopefully going to cover. A lot of people spend their entire life on land and forget there's a lot of beauty underwater that should be explored and enjoyed. With me today is the developer and deep water diver, Christophs. How are you doing today, Christophs? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? It's a pleasure. I'm great. It's a pleasure. So before we dive into all this like tech stuff, how <laughs> did you get how did you get like interested in programming? What was um, why why programming and why development? Why why tech? You know, I really wish I could answer this, but it was quite a long time ago. I think that um, when I went to college a long time ago, the, it was a financial kind of decision. I wanted to do something that was fairly stable. That, of course, did not end up being a very good idea because this was around the 2000s during the recession and mm. uh, tech was hit rather hard. So not, yeah, you know, bubble, yeah. in, in hindsight, I should have become a lawyer. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, but I think that programming is always something that I really enjoyed, mostly in systems at the time. And then later when I did more mathematics, you know, applying mathematics in terms of uh, writing systems was just a good fit. And I just do it more and more. So nowadays, especially if you're within the BSD community, writing software is just kind of what you do. You see something wrong or broken and you step in and you fix it or you contribute. You're part of a community of, of people making things. So there's a lot of uh, feedback, a good feedback loop. Was there any like light bulb moment in your studies when you were doing programming where you're like, oh, this is very interesting. Maybe I should spend some more time on this. Uh, as a student, that's all we did basically was spend time okay. doing that. <laughs> so I don't think that there was much, uh, much in the way of a light bulb as kind of, you know, being in a dim room where it's just there all the time and you're exhausted. <laughs> but um no, I wouldn't say that there was any particular moment. Uh, I think that there was certainly moments when I realized that all the theory that I'd studied as a student suddenly was very applicable in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And things that seemed very uh, abstruse, like uh, search networks and stuff, all of a sudden was something I was using in my daily life. So there was a very much a moment of that. How, how did you end up in uh, the BSD land? How did you stumble on Unix-based operating system? Well, I think that um, it's a very good question. Uh, when I was a student, mostly what we were using was the larger Unices. Uh, they were having, I actually don't remember, I think it was whatever was running on deck back in the day on the, on the big alpha machines that we were using as servers. And this is around the time when Linux was becoming very popular. NetBSD was there as well, as I vaguely recall. And I was using, I think, Linux quite a lot at that time because I didn't really know any better mm -hmm. and after I graduated I think that I was just looking for a more secure kind of environment to play with and to use something a little bit simpler and there was a good friend of mine at the time who was uh, using a lot of BSDs and he recommended using OpenBSD and I think that I just really enjoyed the simplicity of it but I don't remember this this was this is also quite a while ago and you saw the light of the BSD so to speak, it was specifically OpenBSD. So I've never really been uh, that active in the other ones. Um, mm -hmm. they've, I've used them and I use them a lot just for testing and, and for kind of in passage. But predominantly, I've been using OpenBSD for the past at 
how does your workflow look like when you boot up your computer you're supposed to write a script that does something how do you yes do so um i guess i can i can even just show you so it kind of looks like this the open uh, desktop yes it's just a simple desktop i use uh, either fbwm or these days, sometimes if I've got multiple monitors, I use XFCE, although I don't really like it. I prefer the simpler FEWM. Okay. To be honest, window manager doesn't really matter to me. Um, I have a bunch of terminals. Uh, I do a lot of C programming uh, mm. these days, predominantly, as, as I always have. And it's pretty much the same workflow, I think, that people have been using since the 70s. So it works rather well. You get your terminal open, you write your code, you make it. And uh, in terms of debugging, it uh, there's a lot of tooling that I'll bring in for that. Fuzzing tools, there's the Valgrind tools, there's linters, there's et cetera, et cetera. Do you use any like terminal multiplexers like Tmux or uh, Screen or something like that? Sure. So on my servers, I'll generally have Tmux or T. I'm not really sure even, I've never said that word out loud before, Tmux. Uh, screen, it used to be, of course, we all used to use Screen yeah. uh, back in the day. And then now the like, Tmux is integrated much better. I don't notice a difference, to be honest. But a lot of the times, I won't even do that. Uh, most of my servers, I just log into when I need to. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, and then it's finished. <laughs> nice, nice. So, since we're uh, a bit of a security-related podcast, let's jump into security. Because this is a very hard topic, because writing code is hard. It's very hard. And there's a lot of landmines to stumble upon. And you, you, you gave a great talk a couple of years ago i think where you pinpointed that every developer should write defensive code use auditors qa team use up-to-date audited libraries with history of being good use a language of formal underpinning and proof of correctness run on systems supporting our defensive strategy and at the same time we should ride our magical unicorns to work (laughs) 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 because it doesn't exist yet unfortunately. No, no, I, I wish, I wish. Uh, yeah, I think that um, that ideal has not yet come about. I'm still waiting very patiently for the day when I've got a team of QA and auditors and all this sort of thing sitting behind me at all times. But, uh, but until then, it's just me kind of consistently making mistakes about three a day, depending upon how many hours I've slept <laughs> the night before. What do you think is like a realistic approach to people being able to write more defensive code and uh, being able to write better and more secure code? Is it to like throw on a lot of CIs that checks everything? And uh, what, what, what? I think it starts with a lot of humility that uh, people should be much more humble. Uh, even the smartest person uh, can make typos. You can be the most brilliant programmer in terms of everything is going to be correct but that doesn't mean your fingers are going to be correct when they type out that beautiful, wonderful code that always works. Uh, and then, of course, the moment uh, somebody else gets a hold of your code and adds a contribution or whatever, you know, that's the nature of, of writing things in a, in a community is that you're only as strong as your weakest link. I think that a lot of people, when they talk about or think about defensive code, I think about the actual code itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I always found a bit of a mystery because you can write as defensively as you want. You're probably going to make the same number of mistakes. And one of the reasons why I like uh, OpenBSD so much is that their approach to security is a bit more practical and realistic, where it acknowledges that you as a programmer 
you know, in the best of cases, probably you're going to screw up. And, uh, and what you can do to prevent those screw ups that you inevitably are going to make from impacting your operators or your users. So I'm very much a fan of things like uh, Pledge and Unveil that, uh, that have been around for a few years now in uh, basically saying, when I do make mistakes, here's what it's going to affect. This has become very much my approach when I'm writing systems is there's going to be mistakes in here, probably huge ones. I mean, not very many of these have been found, but I'm sure that they're there, right? They, they must be there. Sure. The question is, uh, where is it going to blow up? And I'd really rather have it blow up in a way that does not affect people's databases or uh, give an adversary a means to have a shell open or something like this. So really, the tools that I use are always an acknowledgement that I'm going to fail somewhere along the way, either in using those tools uh, and, and so on and so forth. Is there any Things common like patterns you see that are like when you look at other people's code that, okay, maybe this is like a common pattern for breaking something or uh, bad implementing um, something? I would say this is something that's changing quite a lot, actually, as the, the tools that we use change. Uh, for example, in, in the world of C, which, which is effectively unchanged in, in as long as I can remember, the pattern of things that are wrong are the usual ones that we would associate with C in terms of memory access violations, people not really understanding pointers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, parts of the language itself, I think that once you start taking those foot guns out of the language, people start to make different kind of mistakes. But the rate of mistakes is going to be the same. I think it's really important. So when you have languages that don't have the ability to blow up in your face as much, people tend to displace those mistakes into other things like their tool chain or the ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, when I'm doing things, I work a lot with, um, not a lot, but I work with TypeScript and JavaScript on, on the front mm -hmm. end sometimes. And I absolutely, I hate it <laughs> because not the I, language, I which you. is... Yeah. You know, the language is just what it is. It's just another language yeah. uh, with all of its quirks and so on. But uh, I really struggle with the ecosystem because it's so fragmented. It moves so quickly. It's quite low quality in a lot of ways. And there, the mistakes seem to be more one of uh, making the environment, the ecosystem, be very fragmented and balkanized and so forth. So I think it really depends upon, you know, the, the trends and mistakes are going to be dictated by the environment. Certainly, absolutely. Something you mentioned there, which is very interesting, is the pledge and unveil, which is to security mitigation built into OpenBSD. Pledge being uh, being kind of built into the kernel feature where you make a pledge, you make a promise of uh, this is supposed to do something, and if it doesn't do something, then it uh, the process dies. Which is, uh, I think, it's very interesting. It's pretty new, and uh, you have actually adopted it, right? in a couple of your programs? Well, it, it's very interesting you mentioned. So for Pledge, um, I, I think that KCGI was the first third-party utility that integrated not just Pledge, but what came before Pledge, which was called Tame. So Tame was mm. the uh, first kind of, and again, I'm not speaking with any relation to OpenBSD, but as a user, Time was one of the first things that came out. Uh, and the only difference really, as I recall, besides the internals was that instead of accepting a written set as a string of pledges, it was a bit mm. mask. Um, okay. But um, so time was, I don't even know how many years ago, ago it was, but, but KCGI was one of the first programs, if not the first, that actually used 
time before it even came out in the in a release when it was well, still occurring. Where and does Tame come from? Is it just does it come from the I community think, community or does yeah, it, it was the same thing. So Tame was oh. renamed as Pledge, and, uh, okay, and the interface was right. changed. Yeah, but it was it was what uh, and again I'm not speaking canonically here. This was just as a user, and I hated it. <laughs> At first, I really did not like it. Um, I come from a background of doing, uh, of working with what you may recall as SysTrace, um, yep. and uh, so, which is just basically very straightforward uh, seccomp style things, although without VPF. Um, so very capabilities based, and I really did not like how broad the concept of tame, you know, cum pledge was. I thought it was very. Uh, a granular and coarse, and I was very much against it. I wanted things to be very fine. I wanted control of very particular things. I, I was much younger in my defense, right? And I had oh, more yeah. energy. And I thought, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can, you know, when I'm using something like SysTrace, and I think I had several programs that were uh, at the time already protecting themselves with SysTrace. And I do believe that this was so. Uh, I was working both with Linux and OpenBSD, so there was SysTrace on Linux, I'm sorry, SysTrace on OpenBSD and NetBSD, and mm -hmm. on Linux there was, uh, I think that SecComp sec did exist, but it was before they had more infrastructure behind it. So it was very convenient to have both of these, you know, and I, I, I kind of dealt with it. I didn't like them very much because they were so ponderous. Um, writing a new program needing to write the, either the SysTrace or the SecComp interface was always just like, ugh. And I, I kind of internalized that that was normal. Security was painful and, uh, and took a lot of time. And I seemed to make as many mistakes in that security <laughs> as I did the program itself. And then when Tame came out, something that took hundreds and hundreds of lines was just three lines. Nice. And, uh, and, and, and I really fought back in my mind. I thought this is not right. Security should be a burden. Security should be very difficult and hard to enact. But over time, I realized that as I write, wrote more programs and those programs evolved over time, it was the pledge approach to things that really ended up having so much value where I could think coarsely and granularly. And that really has, there's also two course. So as a counter example, by the way, Mac, I think OS 10 or OS X or whatever mm -hmm. I was supposed to say, uh, had a, a security precaution. I think they call it seatbelt or something. Sandbox mm -hmm. init was the name of the function that one could use, which was kind of pledge-like in the sense where you would give it a category, like saying, I want to only have temporary files, no network. And there were just like five categories, right? And, uh, and it's still there, it's deprecated, but you can still use it to, mm -hmm. as the programmer to protect your own programs. So there's like, that's the even more granular to the point of being almost useless. But, but over time, I've really started to enjoy pledge and, and in many respects, the fact that it's not been implemented elsewhere is, is a mystery to me. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's difficult in the kernel. Yeah, we're, we're talking seccomp, and uh, then we're kind of jumping into the mandatory access uh, trail where you're like, your, your program is supposed to do this and this and this and this, and uh, you write this major profile. I have a funny story about uh, SE Linux, which is kind of the same, mm -hmm. where you write this profile, oh, this program is only supposed to do this. So I, I used to work like uh, doing uh, penetration tests for uh, various companies. And then there was one penetration test where they were running SC Linux on like the majority of the applications. But then the, there was one application that was not running SC Linux. And that was running as a low privilege 
or like a medium privilege user and I found an exploit in that that was not running at the Linux. <laughs> And, and using that uh, program was not get running at the Linux. I was able to get the get a shell at the user, then use a, a privilege escalation to kind of uh, go into root. And then when when it was root, there were kind of all these like huge file directories with all these like at the Linux configurations and like. <laughs> but you know, you fuck up once with one program, and then you're then you're fucked basically. And right, yeah, right, it's a very it's... interesting uh, uh, that you have pledge, which is much simpler and. Uh, ah. Hopefully, we'll gain a lot of adoption because it's easier to use and it's not it's not hard. But uh, that's always a struggle gaining adoption of the the mitigations. To be, to be honest, I'm not sure. I, I wish I were more uh, hopeful about this. Um, but mm. but I mean, so so taking this aside for a moment, I do think one thing that people forget a lot when talking about application security uh, and things like SE Linux or writing uh, capabilities for a program is that often the program itself does not need, it can be broken down into its different functionalities. They can be split apart. And then your huge uh, filter for the whole program only applies to one half and one half. And one of the great things also about Pledge is for the ability to program out to say, you know, my program is only gonna do this in this part and this in this part. And I think in particular for Linux, one of the, you know, uh, which I, I guess this makes sense for some applications, but people think that the program should have access to do this and that and the other. But in fact, uh, programs often can be broken down. So you get much finer security and saying, well, this part of the program can get audio. This part of the program can get video, but, uh, but these are not mutually uh, exchangeable. And another thing, of course, that I love about Pledge is being able to take my programs like with, with KC Java, Acme Client, with RPK, our client, et cetera, et cetera, and to break them down, to have them communicate over IPC and to have different pledges for each part of them uh, that are very restrictive. And this is something that is uh, very good for the, for the developer in order to think this way, to break things down. I mean, we as, as the developers know what a program is gonna look like, so we can, mm -hmm. we can do this. And for the security, of course, we're really minimizing the amount of space uh, for our mistakes to, uh, to take hold of our systems. So th this is uh, another thing that I really like about uh, Pledge that at first I didn't really see the utility for. I guess I really wasn't doing as much uh, compartmentalization in my programs as I am these days. Yeah. But uh, but you were talking about uh, people adopting Pledge, um, and I kind of made a face because I know how strongly in the beginning I didn't like it mm -hmm. uh, because, because I had this illusion. Okay. I, I thought security should be perfect. You know, security. I should be able to control everything. And I really clung to that, and it's very impractical. But and in the end, I didn't even use that level of perfection. I mean, the, the SysTrace or whatever SecCom sandboxes that I wrote were often more broad than they needed to be. So I didn't take advantage of my own vaunted, you know, perfect security. And in the end, a lot of the things that would have made it imperfect wouldn't have made much of a difference. Being able to open a file but not read or write to it, I mean, it's not really that different. So I think people are very uh, they cling very much to the concept of perfect security and they kind of forget that practical security goes much farther than that in terms of protecting the user or the operator. Um, and also one thing that is even more insidious than that is the language in which you're using it and the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So for example, something like C, it's very straightforward what your program is doing. Uh, once you start stepping away from that and getting into things like JavaScript, 
it's much harder to actually know what the engine is doing that's that's governing that. So I understand that actually Node has some uh, fledged capabilities, but in practice, I just have no idea what Node is going to be doing in the backend, what it's going to be reading or not reading. Black magic blob. It's voodoo. It's total voodoo. And even things like, um, you know, uh, once you start bringing in more dependencies, I know Rust, for example, has a huge similar problem to uh, to JavaScript, where there's just you know crates for everything. And being able to control all of that with Pledge is good, uh, or something Pledge-like. But again, you don't know what those are going to be doing, so it becomes very difficult to manage it. Yeah, I think that there are other things as well. I mean, writing something like Pledge is very difficult in the kernel. Uh, you need a lot of people working together. I know with things like Linux, there isn't that much of a binding structure between their libc's multiple and the kernel itself. So it's much more difficult. With OpenBSD, it's all under one roof. Uh, but I at least would love to see it on something like FreeBSD, NetBSD as well. It's just, I guess, a matter of manpower. And I said, I would like to see it, but I'm not really contributing any patches. So I feel guilty saying this. What, what do you think? You, you, you kind of put it into, pledge into production. Do you, th do you think it's painful to use? Or what are kind of your uh, recommendations for people that want to use pledge and uh, want to adopt it? That just, it's super easy. It's super, super easy. All you think about is what does your program want? Does it want to read to files? What, what is the only thing that it wants? I think is a perspective. Yep. What, how is it going to access your, you know, how is it going to affect your system? Is it going to affect your system by files? Well, then let it do files. So you give your program the ability to do things. And then if you don't give it, it's going to crash. And you can very quickly see, <laughs> I should have given it this. I should have given it that. Uh, it takes a bit of time when you're starting with a new program. And some programs are really hard. I mean, anything with like GTK or Qt or something like this oh, is man. much more difficult because you've got all sorts of tendrils you know, that are reaching all around. But it certainly is it's possible. So I, I think it's also a good exercise to understand the program you're using. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, really good answer. One interesting program that you have uh, created is SQLbox, which is uh, a version of SQLite. Am I right there? Or uh, what is SQLbox? So SQLbox is, uh, it originally was KSQL. Um, I okay. had a, a really bad time where I just had no creativity. So everything that I wrote was K and then the name of what it did and uh, this. Oh, uh, so that's why KCDI or. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of other ones too. And I just, after a while I was like, I need to stop. I need to stop doing this. Um, because it's also very easy to confuse with, with KDE, which does the same thing. So there were a lot, lots of naming collisions, but SQL books, um, nay, uh, KSQL is, is very, very straightforward. It basically, is a, a process so it's, it's a library that forks a process and that process talks with an sqlite database it doesn't implement any sqlite itself it uses the data the library interface and instead of directly talking to the database you use in a process communication to talk to sql box and it will return mm -hmm. the data for you now on fast this is just completely useless overhead right but if you think about from a security perspective running sqlite requires a lot of work with your uh, file system and you want not to be able to touch that database at all so if you pledge your calling program um, mm. from touching the file system at all then now you don't need any access to the file system you're entirely talking with your database uh, over okay. in a process communication 
So in, in some way, and it doesn't, I mean, it's as simple as possible. It's a very small code base. It does implement things like access control. I use quite a lot um, for some highly security sensitive systems that need RBAC. And, but I was very much inspired by uh, PostgreSQL where the, you interface it with an over sockets. So uh, when you start PostgreSQL library interface, you're talking with it over, over file descriptors. Hmm. And I thought this is great because now I can just pledge everything out, only talk over the already open file descriptors. And now I don't need to worry about my calling application uh, running amok and destroying my database. Uh, for things like web applications, this is very useful where we're dealing with very untrusted input. This is how attackers break into your system is through web applications. And I would rather they not have access to my database. Certainly. And that's, that's pretty, and the, in terms of there is overhead, as always, with security, there's a price you pay. Um, most of the systems I work with, and I think that most people work with, you are not even gonna notice it in terms of overhead. Even if you're talking about uh, a 10 times speed up, which it's not, then uh, for a small or medium size of application, it's not gonna make much of a difference. Does it do any like uh, input uh, validation? And uh, I know when I use uh, SQL uh, databases, I, there's a lot of uh, string, I escape a lot of strings and uh, do a lot of input uh, uh, validation. Does SQL bots do any input validation of things from inquiries no. or? It's, it's just basically an IPC shim. So all of those is, uh, is uh, it doesn't even care anything about the fact that it's SQLite is irrelevant. It could be anything. Oh, okay. It's just passing the strings directly in SQLite. And the only benefit of it, and for me, it's a, it's a rather significant one, again, in terms of, of protecting uh, the, the operating system from the web application, where I, again, I assume I'm making mistakes, is okay. in failures in my web application should not affect the database. And that was as simple as that. And then SQLite is very good at what it does. It's, uh, it's gorgeously written. Um, if you ever look at the source code of it, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the author. Dr. Is it Dr. Hip is his name? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. The, um, he's, he's just, uh, he's written an amazing piece of code. Uh, the other things he writes are also pretty amazing too. So I have a lot of respect for that. Um, it does what it does. I don't touch it. <laughs> Uh, SQL box is simply there to accept over file descriptors and give to SQLite to accomplish and then takes the results and gives them back as well. It has some minimal support for caching responses and batching them and so on. So it's a little bit, you know, slightly efficient, but the whole purpose of it is simply to make a box and nothing more. So I'm, I'm very much a fan That's of right. very easy to understand systems in that regard. SQLite does all, right. all the databases and has full access to the file system. Um, and my application has none. It just talks in SQL box. Hmm. So uh, that's a very interesting approach to it. Uh, so what are kind of, uh, do you use static, uh, static anal uh, analysis tools at all? You talked that you used Valgrind and uh, yes, do you use fuzzing or do you use? Uh, oh yeah, a tremendous amount of fuzzing. So, um, I have access to a machine that's like, it's not very big, it's maybe like 64 or 100 cores or something like this. And basically all it's doing all the time is just fuzzing. So all of the programs that are written, I mean, whether it's SQL box, actually, I'm not sure if SQL box has any fuzzing because um, it's not, it is not passing anything. 
all the parser kind of programs uh, low down uh, KCGI as as significant puzzling because it's so high profile. KCGI, which has been in development for at least ten years, it's it's quite old by now. The the part that does the HTTP parsing has been audited. There was a professional audit done of it. Uh, it's fuzzed all the time. No changes go into it without being fuzzed for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, oh, wow. And you know, no changes really have to be done. Most of what I use is AFL, uh, simply because <laughs> it's easy. But um, I don't think there'd be much of a difference from using other ones. Um, yeah, lowdown, the, the markdown parser I wrote is, has been heavily fuzzed. Uh, basically, all, all the programs I've written effectively are, are run over hundreds and hundreds of hours. Nice. Um, and they catch all sorts of wonderful and mysterious things. So it's very humbling. If you want a little bit of humility, take your program, run it through a fuzzer, and you'll realize that you're really not a great programmer. <laughs> Yeah, we had uh, had Daniel who was writing, and he came up with the tool uh, Curl. The oh Daniel from Curl, yes, he, yeah, yeah, a, we had I him on a couple of weeks ago, long. and he has a, he has a fun approach to it that when you think your code is perfect, do some fussing, and you realize it's all an illusion. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I'm I really respectful uh, of Daniel's work as well. He came out of Sweden as well, right? Yeah, he's he, from uh, Stockholm somewhere there. Uh, yeah, because hack, hacks.se, I think, SE yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is his side. But I've, uh, again, a tremendous amount of respect for his work. Uh, I use libcurl extensively as well. And it does oh, also work cool. well with, uh, with Pledge. It can be easily integrated oh, there. Nice. But nice. Uh, most of my, the web applications I write, you know, they need to send emails and stuff. Uh, so all of that is over, um, over libcurl. Uh, KCGI has a regression framework. Uh, that uses libcurl as well to create all the HTTP stuff as well. So I, I use oh, cool. that. Uh, I use it rather extensively. Um, so he's, he's done great work. Yes, certainly. And uh, he's been doing it for like 20 years now. And uh, now finally, like he started a year ago, getting uh, to work with it full time, which is uh, which is pretty cool. That's interesting because you know in the average stack of the, the, uh, the web application stack today you see stuff like Node.js, Python, Ruby on Rails, and other like high-level languages. But uh, you're a bit of an advocate of using BSD, C, HTTP, D, and uh, stuff like that. That's a very interesting yeah. approach to kind of like saying goodbye to PHP and uh, all that fluff and doing it in C. It's like yeah. C or if you're gonna write a web application, it's the to-go language for that? Um, you know, it really depends again upon who's writing it and the environment. Um, so I'm not, I would never advocate anybody to use any language or framework or whatever. I guess, so I do write a fair number of web applications. In fact, a lot of my job revolves around that. Hmm. And they're all in C. Um, they are effectively just programs, I mean, the fact that it's a web application is not really fundamentally different from any program. They use, they use uh, CGI and FastCGI that's provided by KCGI, which of course was written for this purpose. Um, I've written some stuff in Node.js as well, but so there's a program I wrote, um, which I use extensively called OpenRad Tool. Mm -hmm. It's not very well known. In fact, I think there are very few users of it. And effectively what it is, is a data modeling application where you write the configuration of your database and how you want to access individual members, searching, obtaining, inserting, this sort of thing as a configuration file. And it generates the entire API for you. 
to access that. Hmm. Uh, so for example, you would say, I have a, a, a user and I've got a session. You know, the session references a user, it's got an ID, it's got this, it's got that. I want to be able to insert into it. Uh, I want to be able to search for this. Uh, I want to be able to update this from this. You know, you can also use roles in terms of role-based uh, uh, sort of approaches. And then this program, Open Red Tool, will generate the full uh, data layer API for you in C. Oh, so nice. uh, using, using SQL box, which has cut down on the amount of time it takes to implement something by, I'd say 85 to 90%. Um, oh, so if wow. I look at the the actual programs, the web applications I have, uh, in terms of lines of code, there's the there's the application itself, which is basically going to accept input and emit JSON, and then it's a few thousand lines, ten thousand, whatever. Uh, then the amount that's generated by OpenRAD tool can be tens of thousands of lines of just the functions that do database access. Ooh. And every time I change something, it just immediately will change the entire API. It's it's wonderful. And I also wrote a shim for it to generate node.js simply to kind of understand more about node.js. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of my antipathy toward node.js came from that. <laughs> trying to find a straight answer on how to do anything was, was very painful. Coming as I do from a background of, you know, oh, just look at the man page for anything and it will yeah. reveal the answer to you in explicit detail. I felt uh, like I was uh, swimming in the sea on a rough day. Uh, with no dodge as simple things just had no straight answer um, very frustrating but uh, but I, I mean i use uh, c extensively on on the back end for web applications i think if somebody is proficient in c and they're aware of their limitations then then it's fine as well um, you may have heard of bchs <laughs> which yep. people think is a joke but it's not it never was <laughs> um, and it's uh, unusual i guess so i mean i think from what I understand, it's actually much more usual than you might think. I have a lot oh, okay. of traffic in my inbox from people who write fairly, I'd say, well-known applications online that you probably use yourself, which are written in C or C++. Oh, um, nice. Probably more in C++ though than C, um, but all of the tools on BCHS work with C++ just as well as they do C. Um, but C but, has a uh, lot of but, beauty to it, like portability. Like you can yeah. write something in C and it runs everywhere. Yeah, this is, people didn't never think about this. And it, it's also a bit of a lie. So you, you need to understand <laughs> that uh, it's, it, if you're running, writing pure C, then absolutely it will run on everything from a microcontroller to, uh, to a supercomputer. But the moment you start pulling in things from libc, that's where you get differences. Um, uh, as an example for this, um, there's a whole uh, portability shim I wrote called OConfigure. Mm -hmm. I wrote it for, I think it was originally for Mandoc actually. Um, and then uh, Ingo Schwarzer, who, who basically, by the way, actually does Mandoc. He has for the past 10 years. I've not touched Mandoc in a long, 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 long time. So Ingo Schwarzer is, is the, the king of Mandoc and he's done an incredible job. He's, he's an amazing person to work with. Uh, I strongly recommend it uh, if, if you need people to do C in particular. He's just, he's, he's really an amazing figure. But anyway, he, he wrote this portability because Mandoc obviously works with everything from Solaris to, I think Irix has been talked about recently. Hmm. Um, all the BSDs, Linux, um, Tech Alpha, you know, Ultrix, whatever. 
and the size of a lot of these portability measures is significant. <laughs> and uh, I actually wrote a post recently that can be found on BCHS about just how many things are not compatible between systems is quite, uh, it's quite significant, but that's not C the language, that's mostly libc. So making syscalls and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, a lot of it was things that are soft that are not in the kernel at all, like time, uh, time management, uh, format strings, mm -hmm. uh, just tiny little differences that really one doesn't expect or think of uh, can cause problems. But, uh, but fortunately, these, these are, are very well documented usually. So it's easy to understand, hmm. but there, there are, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls and when writing portable C code, there are quite a lot of if deaths uh, that you end up needing to, 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 uh, to use in the simplest example, if you want to use uh, string handling, like still copy or still cat, which came out of OpenBSD, uh, you need portability interfaces for that. If you're running on some Linux versions, if you're running on, uh, any Solaris, etc., which do not have them. So, hmm. um, you do, you do end up needing quite a lot of uh, portability there. But, uh, cool. but it, it is, I think, uh, far more portable than most people think. They think it's very kind of limited to one system, but it's not at all. Yeah, because it's one of the, like you said, one of the most used language that has been used for the last, uh, what was 100, it? 100, 150 years, I think it is. It was, uh, it was Abraham Lincoln who actually started writing C back in, uh, Back in the 16th century, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but all, all the like kernels are written in C, or the majority of them, and uh, so you want to like know or understand low-level stuff. You you um, cease to go. Yeah, I mean it, it's just another language. Um, I think it's a fine one. I like it. I've been using it for I don't know about 20 years, 25 years, and I've used. I don't even know how many languages. Uh, I use Fortran quite a lot. I don't anymore. Mm. But uh, so Fortran, you know, Java, C, C++. Uh, recently, I've been playing with, uh, you know, the, the whole TypeScript and Node.js people. Uh, Rust and Go, which are, are nice, but rather young. I missed the boat with things like Python. I just, I wasn't there when it was really becoming enforced. So I don't know mm. that much about it, but you know, every environment is going to have different needs. And again, the, the, the proclivity to make mistakes is going to be the same, no matter what language you're writing in. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, those uh, kind of Python, Rust and uh, all these kind of newer languages, uh, people are actually starting. I'm seeing a bit of uh, like pledge and undeal adoption there. I have, mm. um, I know some uh, clients of, they run some web applications and I help them that runs Python. And then I helped mm -hmm. them implement the uh, undeal into production environment. So that was very, very in, uh, in Python application. So that was very interesting. Uh, a lot of things, broke, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of things were already good. broken. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's very um, interesting. Um, uh, unveil is, is really, uh, uh, I'll give you an example of, of where unveil is just amazing. Um, when I wrote open rsync, um, which, which I don't think very many, I mean, I've gotten like two patches from people. I thought that it was really going to be something a lot of people wanted to contribute to, but, um, but no, but if you do want to write your own rsync implementation, it does document the entire protocol. So you can, you can do that now, but, uh, I think it's the only other rsync implementation out there, uh, that I'm aware of. 
but anyway, um, something in saying, well, okay, I won't, I've got a, a, you know, something that can be run as root, very network sensitive. It is touching the network and it needs to touch your file system. It's very, very tender, right? You need to be very careful to simply unveil and say, uh, only write into this directory and what's beneath it is just a tremendous relief for somebody like me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to make mistakes in here? I'm handling untrusted input as root on the system. I mean, it's very, very, I sweat when writing that kind of code. And to know that Unveil is there when I do screw up and those scripts are going to be all in that contained uh, directory, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge relief. To, uh, to be able to say something like that. And I use it, I think with, I use Pledge a lot more because most of, it's just the nature of the programs that I write. But Unveil, I've made, I think about a half dozen or so programs are, are using Unveil. And it's, it's, it's great. It's really wonderful. So I, nice. I, uh, I use both of these quite a lot. That's very nice. So something that I think we should cover is uh, diving. What's up with that? <laughs> Sell me on diving. Why should I go diving. in the waters? Um, why should you go in the, well, I mean, besides the fact that it, it's there, uh, even if you're, you're in cold northern places like Sweden, it's there as well. Um, it's just, if you like being outdoors, I think it's just another place to be out of doors. Uh, some people like to hike. Diving is like hiking in the water. Um, oh, cool. Uh, with fewer mosquitoes, I, I might add, you know. It's nice, nice. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's. I think a lot of people are very afraid of the water they see it as being very different, and it is a completely different environment. There's much more of a sense of uh, privilege in getting in. I feel every time I get in the water, which is maybe a few times a week, that uh, I feel very privileged in, in in being able to do so. It's it's a wonderful environment to spend time in. So most of what I do underwater is photography, actually. Ooh, uh, nice. And uh, it's a very expensive hobby, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I'm a I'm a free diver as well as a technical scuba diver. Um, What's the difference? He's still, well, with free diving, it's where you take a really deep breath and you dive down. It's like extreme snorkeling. Okay, I don't. Okay, uh, cool. The term free diving is a little scary because people associate it with films like Le Grand Bleu and Danger, where you know people are holding their breath for ten minutes and diving down hundreds of meters, you know, oh, like shit, they do in these professional. But in practice, it just means going out in a wetsuit. At, you know, seeing something that's nice on the seafloor, taking a deep breath and diving down and spending time to see what's there. And then, of course, scuba diving is with one or more tanks on your back. So I do both roughly equally, depending upon the time of year. What's the logistics and of uh, going uh, deep water diving? You get to, uh, do you need some kind of license and some fancy paper or uh, can you I just jump in with the tubes? I think you can actually, there's no law against anything. I mean, you can, you can jump in. If you really want to chase death, you can't just jump in with, with some random tanks. And uh, I don't, you know, anybody Amazing. who's involved in that is, is very irresponsible. Of course. <laughs> there's, a, there's an extensive amount of training, um, a lot of training in order to, to start deeper diving. Uh, and when we're talking about deep, it's not that deep, the, the simplest license you can get is for open water diving, which limits you to 18 or 20 meters, I think, depending upon the certification one uses. Mm -hmm. There's wonderful things to see just down there. I mean, even being able to dive down five meters, you're still in a completely different environment. And, uh, and there's a tremendous amount to see, um, depending upon where you live. Um, 
in Sweden, for example, you're not going to see all that much around 20 meters. It's usually when you get down to like 60 or 80 meters because you have shipwrecks uh, that are down oh, there. Nice. Um, in a place like uh, the Caribbean, in fact, you're not going to find many places that are deeper than 20 to 30 meters because it's kind of a butte where you've got the islands and then it drops down mm -hmm. like that. So, um, you know, uh, 20 meters is just, is just perfect. In a place like Malta, it's a little bit deeper where you have the more interesting things, um, maybe 30 or 40 meters or so. So the simplest license just takes a few days. It's a few hundred euro depending upon where you go. And you can use it all over the world once you get that certification. Cool. So you could, in Sweden, um, I've done a lot of diving there as well. Not a lot, a little. I got one of my certifications there. And so you can use that around the world. So you can go to Thailand or Vietnam or, or Japan or the United States and dive right. with that same license at any, any center there. Uh, and it's a completely just like with hiking. Hiking in Colorado is going to be very different from hiking in Montenegro. <laughs> Yeah. So there's always something new to see. And uh, I've been doing it for maybe, I don't know, about 10 years, something like this, freediving a little bit longer. Um, and there's always, every time I get in the water, I feel like there's something new to see, which is false. Because <laughs> I live on a small island, there's not that many new things to see. But I feel that there are. Has there been a lot of like uh, unexpected things you found uh, while diving? Like, have you like randomly run into like a, a big wooden ship with uh, I don't know gold treasures or something like that? With with ghosts is what you want to say. Uh, ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think not really unexpected in in a larger sense. So I've been diving with uh, everything from whales to uh, oh, to, cool. to sea slugs. Um, you know, both free diving and scuba. Um, here in Malta, we have a lot of shipwrecks. So I spend a lot of time around shipwrecks, about 15 meters, 40 meters, like I mentioned. But it's usually just things that catch you by surprise because they're, you don't expect them to be at, you don't expect to see them at any given time. I mean, one thing to remember underwater is that your, your field of, of vision is quite limited and you can't hear anything. So you could be in a place where there are plenty of, of, you know, great marine life, like sharks and everything. And then you're just swimming along and then you turn and then one's coming right at you. So oh, it, wow. it's not necessarily, you know, a shipwreck that suddenly appears that nobody has found before. It's just the kind of unexpected life that's all around you. You just don't see it until it's in your face. Nice. Um, but, but no, I've never, I've never discovered any, any, uh, any new wrecks. Not yet anyway. <laughs> That's on the to-do list, maybe. Yeah, I do know that in, um, in, on this island in, in Malta, there are a lot of undived wrecks that they only recently found when I think it was Paul Allen or somebody did a circuit around the island with side-scanning radar, I think, okay. uh, and found a lot of wrecks that just nobody knew were there. And nobody had done that before. And this is, this is apocryphal, so I think that this is the case. I might be getting it very wrong. But in these wrecks, I think, are under 100 meters. So I know they can't be dived uh, with, with the appropriate training. It, keeps, it takes several years to train to get the licenses to dive that deep. And a lot of equipment, it's quite, it's quite expensive. Why is it so hard? Is it because of the pressure? And, uh, or it's, what it's are the obstacles? The obstacles, the deeper you go, are number one, that the gases you breathe become toxic. 
So you have to really uh, understand the different kinds of gases that you that you breathe at depth and the effects they have on your body. Uh, number two is the effects of pressure, where um, you're going to breathe a lot more gas the deeper you go. So if you're limited to what's on your back, then you really need to plan and say, well, I can only spend 10 minutes down here, or I will die. And generally, there's 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 less of a margin to make mistakes the deeper you go because you can't just go to the surface. You need to have mandatory decompression, etc. So, as an example, to do to dive down to 50 meters, which is quite deep, you need to, in general, have a technical certification. So you need to do your open water, which I just mm-hmm. talked about before, which is down to 20 meters. Then the advanced open water or the equivalent, which is down to 30 or 40. And then you need to do your technical for decompression, uh, which usually involves two certifications or so, and that will get you down to 40, maybe 45. And then another (laughs) technical course to learn how to handle not just the two cylinders on your back and the extra cylinder using to decompress, but yet another extra cylinder simply to get down there. So it becomes very, it becomes quite uh, difficult and unwieldy, but ultimately it's a lot of fun if, if you're willing to, to bear the cost and the time for training. Uh, nice. there are a lot of people on the island, the men and women who do it, uh, I see them all the time um, and it's quite common. So it, it is a lot of fun. Uh, nice. How, how are the kind of colors down there? Because I guess the colors are, are very different. Yeah, the colors are going to be absorbed. Well, the colors are the same, but uh, the sunlight that gets down there changes the deeper you go. So obviously, uh, I mean, I'm not a physicist, but the deeper you go, the, the different wavelengths are going to be absorbed by the water. So as you go down the, the bottom of the spectrum, red is going to suddenly start to kind of go away. So if you're just down at 45 meters looking around, uh, things are bluish, mostly greenish bluish. So if I take a photograph without lights uh, down at, at 40 or 45 meters, it's just blue. I mean, not, not just blue, but everything is going to be colored green, blue, uh, violet, um, yeah. all the reds and the yellows, etc., are going to be washed out. That's why people bring down uh, big strobes and video lights when they're yeah. taking photos. So when I'm down diving at any depth, I've got my big camera, which actually I'm not sure if you can see, but part of it is behind me right now. Oh yeah, you've got a lot of lenses. Yeah, well, this is just the underwater part. I'm going to turn it so you can't see the brand because I hate this brand and I do not support it. Um, but <laughs> okay. uh, so this is this is what I use for macro photography. And oh, it's so this just is like just a plastic case you put your camera in. It's or? just a plastic case. Yeah. Well, this mm. one is plastic. Uh, often they're aluminium or something similar. Uh, but in order to use this, I have plenty of lights. So here's like strobes, more strobes. Oh more lights because without that light everything is just going to be blue and so if you're looking at photos that are taken underwater and there's just for example sea slugs are beautifully colored and all all manners of colors generally there's just big there's a guy with a camera a woman with a camera (laughs) and just big strobes everywhere and every time they take a photo everything everything goes like that that's uh But it's, it's a tremendous amount of fun, in particular if you're interested in photography. It's a huge challenge. And, and I might note, all of the photos can be processed on OpenBSD as well. Nice, nice. So, there's no need that's for Lightroom. Right. All right. Another project that's pretty interesting is the BSD.LV project. 
What is that? Yes. So BSD LV is not is not really a project itself. Um, so BSD LV was started by Michael Dexter, I think, maybe 20 or so years ago. And I think he was the one who introduced me from Linux into the BSD world. Uh, he does a lot of free BSD. But um, it's basically a place uh, where a lot of the software that has been written by myself and others uh, lives. So it's kind of a repository for software. As an example, most, if not all of the Mandoc related uh, tools, which are run by Ingo, uh, there's Mandoc, there's Mandoc CGI, which I think even Debian uses now, uh, or a form of it anyway. Um, there's the like pod to MDoc, um, docbook to MDoc, uh, techie to MDoc, etc. All of those live there. And when I say live there, I'm meaning there's like a big CVS repository there or Git now as well. And uh, all of my projects live there as well. So there's everything from Lowdown to SPLG, uh, OpenRSync was written on there, RPKI clients, uh, Acme clients. A lot of older stuff too that I've just forgotten uh, was written there as well. There's kind of just a, a repository for software that's mostly in C. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't know of any software I think Ingo has some Perl software as well mm. there, but people who contribute to uh, these projects generally have an account on the server, which is uh, based out of New York City. And I think uh, New York City uh, BSD Users Group is one of the people oh, who, okay. who sponsored uh, great they people as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, exactly, I don't know off the top of my head, but I do know that it's, it's through them and they've always been very, very helpful. And a great bunch of people to work with as well. Uh, nice. I, I, they haven't done a, a conference in a while, though, that I know of. There used to be a New York City kind of BSD conference, at least there was oh. 10 years ago or something like this, I remember. But because now it's the Euro BSD, and there's the Russian BSD, and then there is the Khan BSD. There's, so there's the, the big ones are there's Euro BSD obviously BSD CAN which is in Canada, Asia BSD is is smaller and there are there are other small ones that kind of crop up from time to time but I think those are the big ones unless I'm just completely forgetting something, BSD CAN is is the largest so if you're going to go to any conference uh, about the BSD BSD CAN would probably be the best one, uh, and that one's often in Canada um, all all the people are there, nice. <laughs> so everybody goes there. Uh, EuroBSD is another great way to meet uh, a lot of the people that we're all familiar with and admire, of course, who work for the, the BSDs and contribute to them. Um, again, Asia is a little bit smaller, but uh, I've always liked going there. You get a very enthusiastic uh, group of people there. And yeah, I could so imagine all, all so. And in fact, in Malta, I know we had USB. I wasn't living here yet, but maybe seven years ago or something, or I don't know how many years ago, there was a BSD, EuroBSD com in Malta. It yeah, because the, yeah, it changes every year, right? Different mm -hmm. capital or, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was uh, in Norway. Uh, it's been in Sweden a few times, I, I know, or at least once. France, yes. That's nice. All right, let's uh, jump into some quick questions to get to know you better. What's your favorite right. drink? Um, coffee. Okay. Well, what's the last <laughs> universal answer? Ask something else. But that's, no, no, that's, the that's, most, that's I, awesome. I love, I love, that's my favorite drink uh, by far. Yes. I would not be here right now if it were not for sure. coffee. I would still probably be, uh, probably still be a slave. 
amazing. It's, uh, it does magic. When was the yes. last time you wrote a handwritten letter? Uh, a handwritten letter, probably 15 to 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. When, when do you feel the most happy in your week? When are you peaking on happiness? Well, that's a very good question and it has a very direct answer. So when I'm free diving, which again is when you're taking a big breath and you dive down, it's very, very peaceful because your body kind of slows down. There's an actual reflex called the mammalian reflex, the dive reflex, where your heart rate slows down, you have some vasoconstriction. Uh, you feel very peaceful when you're doing it because your body is giving you signals that it is peaceful. Um, and the longer you do it, the more and more you feel this. Uh, so it actually ends up being, you, you feel very, very good. Uh, one of my favorite things to do after having dived already for maybe an hour or two, when I'm already very slow, probably a little hypoxic in terms of not getting enough oxygen <laughs> after a while, it makes you a little yeah. giddy to dive down into the sand, right? The white sand that we have all around here. Uh, find a nice sandy patch where I can just look around and see nothing but white sand and just lie there on the bottom. Uh, it can be 20 meters down, it can be 30 meters down, it doesn't really matter. Uh, to effectively stay there for you know, a few minutes, depending upon how long my breath hold is gonna be, uh, is a very, very peaceful time and, and uh, very enjoyable. So that's, that's one of my favorites. Uh, the second one, which also would be in diving, is uh, uh, taking certain photographs are very rewarding when they work out, uh, particularly macro photographs where you're taking pictures of very small things. To actually get them in focus is very challenging <laughs> and, uh, and well lit and everything. So uh, there's a good sense of accomplishment when, when, that, uh, when that works out. Uh, what's your favorite outside activity? I guess it's diving or... Um, What's your favorite on land outside activity? <laughs> <laughs> oh, on land, uh, photography uh, on land as well. Um, I like doing, uh, yeah, I, I would say just kind of walking around. I don't do that many like athletic activities in terms of running around and stuff uh, on land at least, but um, I really enjoy just taking photos so out in, in either in a natural, a natural setting like landscapes, uh, abandoned buildings with graffiti, are really really nice to take photos of um, cool. or just kind of sitting at a cafe and reading if I get a chance for a few hours is, uh, does it for me. Nice. What's your opinion about the new uh, Rust programming language? Have you tested it out? And, uh, where yeah, uh, the language itself is, is uh, to be honest, it's just another language. Uh, you, you kind of, after a while, I think, see them as being all just another language. Um, it's moving rather quickly, so I don't pay much yes. attention to it. I'm, I'm not very fond of the community. There's a lot of, what's the term, evangelizing, where people talk a lot about it, and it's sometimes hard to, it's a little toxic in that regard. People are very yeah, opinionated. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not very fond of, of opinionated people, probably because I am one myself, and, you know, there's conflict there. But I don't, I don't like when people you know, need to promulgate or talk a lot about the language. It's, it's, it's just another language. I'm also not very fond of the tendency it seems to be making of uh, large numbers of dependencies for things. That's something I think is more of an ecosystem and who is using it and how 
than anything else. It's just not something I personally enjoy. I like when there are very few dependencies and those can be reviewed. So I guess I'm used to building things from scratch and, and you get used to this. But um, as a language is rather complicated, I think, uh, not extremely complicated, not like C++, which I just find yeah. very, uh, you know, it's it a very steep learning curve. My mind. Yeah, it's a very steep learning curve. And th th there's a certain point where I think one should be able, no matter what the language is, you should be able to sit down and read it. I mean, as long as you understand the basic differences between something, for example, that's Lisp-like and C-like, uh, you should be able to more or less, I, you know, you and I can probably walk in and read uh, Haskell and Smalltalk and C and, and Fortran yeah. and roughly understand the same control structures are there. But after a certain point in time, it just becomes very difficult. And I think that that's maybe you can express more in a short, in a smaller space or something. But uh, the readability is important. I want to be able to write something and read it in a week or a year or 10 years. And I do find myself looking at my own code sometimes from five years ago. And, uh, and I'm always like, thank you myself 10 years ago, five years ago for writing comments <laughs> and having this be simpler written and not trying to, to, to cram everything onto one line. Um, Certainly. Have so you heard rest, of, think, uh, yeah. No, no, I, I uh, oh. my, my experience with it is, is, is rather limited. Uh, I also don't like the compilation times. I'm very sensitive to that because I'm very spoiled by C. You want it fast. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm so accustomed to things going like this. And if they don't go like this, I'm sitting there very, you know, <laughs> probably visibly <laughs> upset. <laughs> uh, this is one of the reasons why I have such a love-hate relationship with TypeScript. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the transpiler from TypeScript into JavaScript is hatefully slow. And I say hatefully because it, it, it brings me anxiety to have to compile things <laughs> from TypeScript because it takes so long. I mean, it's, it's seconds oh, wow. for even a trivial program. And I, I kind of understand why, but uh, every time I compile something from TypeScript into JavaScript, I think I know where the EBNF is for JavaScript. I know where it is. I should be able to write a program to do this myself that's written in C uh, or something equivalent that's actually fast every single time. I haven't done it yet, but we'll see. Have you heard about the language is spelled C-O-X, Cox, I think it is? Yes. And it uses yeah, uh, uh, proofs? Uh, you see, CLQ, I think is what you mean. Oh, okay. Uh, C yeah, CLQ. The, the yeah. Cock language. Yeah, uh, so formal proof, uh, when I was doing my PhD, was was, uh, was something a lot of people around were doing. Um, and for mathematics, we were using it as well to do uh, formal proofs. Um, so I've worked, I've worked quite a lot in it. Uh, even before these languages became important, uh, I was doing a lot of prologue for, for, oh. uh, for proofs back in the... Uh, the early 2000s, I think is when that was as well. So, um, it, you know, I think it's, it's great and I like it. Um, for writing, I certainly wish that there were ways to do more formal proofs for smaller programs, but I think that it's just not really gonna happen probably anytime in the near future. Because no, again, pro programs are very hard, they're complicated. Even a simple program has a lot of input, a lot of output, a lot of conditionals. Uh, what the question I think that we need to ask is what is it supposed to be doing uh, correctly? And answering that question is usually quite difficult for, for kind of larger, larger libraries and programs. But I do strongly support this um, kind of uh, yeah, formally cool. proving things.
Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very uh, cool approach to it. How do you do package management on your systems? How do you make sure your package stays up to date? Uh, I use the standard OpenBSD package add, which is just uh, amazing, and I love it very, very deeply. Uh, I think it's uh, Mark Ispy who wrote, writes most of that. And of course, the packages are, are everywhere, and they are some of the people I admire the most in you know, the OpenBSD community are those who write the packages because they're taking the most hostile and unpleasant software <laughs> and finding a way to automatically package it is the kind of effort that uh, I think I, I actually do maintain a small number, like two or three packages. Uh, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a diving program called Subsurface uh, that I do okay. the package for, which is in Qt, in Qt. Um, Linus Torvalds actually started it. Um, Ooh. So it's got it's got a lot of history, but um, even writing the package for that was a nightmare. Uh, I had to be able to do this all the time, especially for languages like Rust, where they have all the crates to manage and such, is is a, a truly a Herculean labor. Why is but it so hard? People, what are the hardest things? There's people, in particular from the Linux world, um, trying to or requiring that it's not just a piece of software, but where it depends upon specific versions of things, and these oh, are yeah. part of the, the package you can download. Yeah, yeah. There's a over in just a tremendous chain of dependencies, and they're also these days built a lot for things like Docker and such, which complicate everything. Yeah. But even for actually the internal, because all of the servers that we have are all on OpenBSD, there's rather significant number of them, and all the internal software that we use is also written with package ad. So we have ports for all of our web applications, all of our maintenance uh, software. So upgrading our systems is just a dream because you just upgrade them and they fetch everything and it's done. Yeah, I think something that is truly amazing is the sys upgrade. Have you oh, played I with that? You, oh, you're yes, on before, absolutely. you have to like download the kernel, you have to check it, you have to do all this, like you have to write the script that does all this fluff. But mm. now it's like, sys upgrade minus r it will upgrade the kernel to the next next release and then it's like yeah. just do everything for you it's like i feel so spoiled they've by done, it <laughs> I, they've done some amazing things in the past few years the sys patch uh sys upgrade now there's just amazing pieces of software and i think that we see of course a lot of this kind of software in different systems but it's you know to see that done correctly and and simply it's just such a breath of fresh air. So it's so easy now to maintain systems. And there's like, there's no excuse anymore. People are saying, I'm running OpenSD 6.5 or 6.6 .6 or whatever. I'm like, why would you even want to do that? Because now it's so easy. Yeah, yeah, right. totally. And the syspatch as well. Very nice too. Syspatch, yep. Yeah, so that, that whole, uh, that kind of constellation of, of uh, the, the package add, sysoperate, syspatch. It used to be FW upgrade as well, but that's kind of, I think the merging of package add is really a, an absolute joy to work with, especially if you have worked with Linux at all. <laughs> and it's such a nightmare every single time. Yeah. Or on, I use Linux simply just for Valgrind mostly. And I don't even bother upgrading it. I just reinstall it. It's just too, yeah. too painful. No. And also the, what's the, there's a tool that uh, when you upgrade a system, it checks for new updates in the configuration files on OpenBSD. Oh, right, Sysmerge. Sysmerge, yeah. The, Sysmerge. That, I this think, is... is a very, very nice tool because new configuration yes. files just break so much stuff. 
Uh, and seeing the diff automatically between both of them, it's so easy to simply just look at everything. I mean, it's really, uh, I think people scoff a lot of the time when they say that ah, OpenBSD is for its developers, but these developers are consummate professionals. They're at the top of their game. I mean, you talk to any OpenBSD developer, they're extremely smart people and, uh, and they use these systems every single day, professionally or not. Um, and so the software that they write is, is very top notch. And generally it's what you want. You just weren't aware of it till you use it. <laughs> I find this happens like with originally with Pledge. Like, I don't want to use this. This is not working for me. And then I realized after using it for a few months, in fact, that's exactly what I wanted. Certainly. It's, it's, it's very, very nice to feel this uh, kind of bending of, of the self around that, but they, they produce some great stuff. Absolutely. What's your favorite IRC client? I actually don't really use IRC uh, simply because I don't have, I tend to minimize the amount of time I spend in front of the computer. But I if don't... someone puts a gun onto your head and say, log in on IRC, post a message. I really wouldn't even know. I haven't used it in so long. Um, okay. I don't, I, I think the last time I used anything like that was XMPP. And I was probably using Pigeon or something like this oh, okay. uh, for it. So I, I'm not really much of a, a chatter in that regard. Uh, these days, I think most people just use WhatsApp, which I, I mean, that's just a different kind of minefield of its own that we need not talk about. Uh, yeah. But most of my communique is by email in this regard. You host your own email? No, no, no. Um, I, I use uh, all the hosts. I don't, don't, okay. don't get into it. I'm a very bad administrator. Okay. <laughs> so All right. I, I would, I would probably one. break everything rather quickly. <laughs> All right. So what does the future hold for you? And uh, what are you most exciting about uh, that is supposed to be released or something that you're working on releasing? God, there, there are really a lot, of, um, a lot of wonderful things that are being written right now. Um, there's things that I would want to see. Uh, for example, I would want to see, and, and if I had like several months to do it, I would, would be Bluetooth uh, in OpenBSD. That, that would be, that would be because my, all my dive computers are over Bluetooth and the cameras a lot of the time use Bluetooth as well. And so that would be a really nice way to, uh, to integrate everything. Um, I think I can talk more about what I don't like. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, there's several programs I have to use all the time that I absolutely hate. Uh, one of them would be uh, for, for photo management. So as a, as a kind of an amateur photographer, pretty much 95% of everything is underwater. Um, I have to do you know, a fair amount of editing of, uh, of photos. And I really, I enjoy, I use UF RAW and GIMP. And these are great programs uh, oh, for GIMP what they do. Cool. Yeah, uh, but for, for RAW photos, I think the, uh, um, there, I mean, there, there are lots of different tools. There's Darktable, there's Raw Therapy. Um, these are very large programs. I like small ones, so UF Raw does it for me. But anyway, photo management is a different story. So I use Shotwell. And I, to say I don't like it would be an understatement. I'm, I'm outraged every time I have to use it because it's just, it's so huge. And several times I've started to write my own. <laughs> several, <laughs> I think two or three. Uh, and I've actually gotten to the point of having things displayed before I've been like, oh my God, this is just too much. But I would love to have a really lean and mean photo management tool that just shows you photos and lets you categorize them. And, you know, very visually based ones, so I can see everything on my displays. 
that's probably something that's missing. I know that recently they've checked in more video editing software. The last time I tried it was with KDN Live, KDE and Live. I, I don't know how okay. they would pronounce that, uh, which would just, which worked a little bit, but had the tendency to crash. I know that they did a new one. Uh, there's some of the newer porting people uh, have checked these in. Uh, I've just yet to play with them. Have you tried um, I think that's the one, the new one, right? They, they put that yeah, in about exactly. six months ago or so. I haven't used yeah. it yet, um, but uh, I will be upgrading my cameras soon and be doing a lot more videography at that point. But in terms of systems, uh, I'm a very minimal user, I would say. So I don't have like, I don't really have advanced needs. I need a shell. I need to run make. <laughs> and nice. I would like to edit my, 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 uh, my videos and, and such, but it's, uh, I don't need huge fast file systems. I don't need ZFS. I think all of these things are great and they've got their place, but I'm not personally you know, that interested in them. The Bluetooth would, would be nice, but if I haven't started to do it, it's not that necessary. Generally, the angrier I get, the more likely I am to do something about it. <laughs> Which again, is one of the great things about being in the BSD community is that there's a lot of encouragement for us to get in and get our hands dirty, so to speak. So that's, uh, that's good. But um, I think most of the work I do these days is uh, a lot on the cameras. So that's more, more of my focus uh, for developing than, than for development, so to speak. Yeah, but I guess that's pretty useful because it gives you good uh, return of investment. You can actually use the stuff and it uh, gives you value. I can look at it. Like I can look at nice pictures. I mean, uh, if you really like slugs, <laughs> which apparently I do, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's definitely a leisure time activity, uh, but, but it is, you know, like any leisure time activity, very important in, in making us who we are and, uh, and you know, a significant part of our lives. So I know I'll be getting, for example, a new housing is coming in and they're very expensive. So it's like a, a very emotional purchase, you know, new cameras, but, um, you know, that's just to take better photos. But yes, all, all of the editing, so all of the, the photos on my site are all done with uh, UF RAW and GIMP. Uh, so, and there's a lot of post-processing for underwater photos, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like, I don't show before and after, but if you were to see the JPEGs that come off the camera and what actually ends up being formatted, you know, I'm not changing the subject, but in terms of color correction and despeckling and all this stuff, it's quite considerably different. Is it very time consuming editing those kind of, Pictures, yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. I, I probably uh, it could be, you know, if I were to be using things like Lightroom and, and they've got more tools for, uh, you know, if I were a professional photographer, then I would be much more concerned with programmatically making sure that the workflow is better. But for me as an amateur, I, I'm fine with, with things being clunky as they are. I mean, UF RAW is like a, not exactly well-known, awesome raw editing. <laughs> It's it's quite. I think I might be the the only person who uses it, and I do all the time. But it is. I'd say each photo is about fifteen minutes to properly oh. edit. Yeah, maybe maybe ten. Or, or I mean, that's for like a nice. Uh, you know, if I'm doing macro photography and you've got this uh, you know, white and blue and red nudibranch that's kind of artfully arranged, and then a black background and everything, making sure that that's nice can take ten minutes or so. What do you do with all the pictures? Does it, uh, you, does it, do they um, end up on some hardware that you never look at or what? You besides making me a lot of, 
I'm a lot of fun to talk to at parties because I can tell I can tell you all about uh, nudibranch physiology. <laughs> so if you ever if you ever really wanted to know, uh, you know, how how nudibranchs reproduce, then I'm I'm the I'm the man for that. You know, great great party material. No, um, I'd say I put a fair number of them on my website, um, and the rest, yeah, just sit on some some rated uh, hard drives. So I've got a bunch of you know two or one terabyte uh, USB drives. I use the, the uh, soft raid or whatever it's called oh, these days to, to, to raid them all together. Um, and if I'm like on an expedition, then I take, I take you know, hot spare with me and I use that and then I come back and I sync them all up and everything. Oh, um, nice. But it's, it's just for the memory of it. Um, some of the photos have been used uh, when I'm with whales, which I try to do as much as I can, then often people end up picking up those photos because they're not very common. Um, nice. Free dining with whales is a tremendous experience. But um, we don't really have that many interesting life forms in Malta, so there, isn't, there aren't like incredible things to have pictures of around here. Yeah, but and luckily all, you can maybe allocate vacation time and go, uh, go somewhere fun. <laughs> well, I do. It's, it's always funny to say that when you live on Malta, you know, because like, people generally come here for their vacations. Yeah. But uh, that's, I mean, for me, a vacation is generally not as, it's fun, but it's not really relaxing. It's like going to, uh, you know, a very far away place and taking pictures of a seahorse for, for two weeks in a row or something hmm. like that, which is uh, not, not, not everybody's taste. All right. So, is there any is there anything we missed that you like to highlight or cover? Um, let me think. I uh, I know in terms of the software that's written, I, I've always wondered why Open Rsync was not was not more. Um, I wouldn't say more popular, but why it wasn't taken up by more people in terms of development. Because Rsync itself as a program is, uh, if you look at the source code for it, it's rather I mean, it's software that has been slowly written and augmented over many years. Mm-hmm. So it's got, it, it very much has that flavor. People talk about code smell, which is ridiculous, but it's, um, it definitely has texture. It's hard to read. It's hard to figure out what's going on. Um, when I did open OpenRSync, I, I kind of made it to be, uh, it's got, it's very well documented in terms of what's going on. Uh, nice. the, there's a, you know, the architecture, the actual source code layout is, is uh, well described. And I, it never, it was kind of very quiet. I didn't get a lot of, I, I just thought a lot of people would be like, oh, we can finally do, you know, awesome things uh, and, and develop that. But, but it never really went anywhere. So I was, I was a little surprised by that. Uh, I do know that if somebody wants to pick up a fairly easy project, that's a lot of fun, uh, Acme Client, which is in OpenBSD, which I originally wrote and has just also you know, hugely changed since then by, uh, by people in OpenBSD. I haven't touched it in many years. It would be fairly easy to take that and make a portable version of it. Cause I know that a lot of people are still using the probably ridiculously insecure stock uh, software for let's that. Let's uh, Yeah, let's encrypt. So like um, the cert bot, a lot of people use, et cetera. But if, I mean, Acme client should be very, cause originally it was portable and I just didn't, once it went into OpenBSD, that's all I used. So I just kind of, I stopped, I archived it a few years ago. But I know that that would be a good project for somebody to pick up to write a portable, to, to portableize 
Acme client so that more operating systems can use it. The uh, and I, think I mean, it's awesome because it's so easy to use, right? Just Acme it's client and then V, uh, before it was VAD. And then, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's uh, I mean, I have it on all of my servers basically for, yeah, for various domains. I, I just don't even, I haven't even thought about it. Uh, I think that there are two, there are two programs that I use uh, quite a lot that not many people know about. One of them is I wrote a continuous integration program for all of BSDLV stuff, actually. I don't expect people, because it's, it's rather focused on C programs and make files and such. But um, I did write a, a system monitor for OpenBC systems called Slabs. Um, okay. I think it works on FreeBSD as well, which was basically what I wanted was top, but for other systems. And, uh, and so, like and a synced so, version of top, or yeah, it's it's like you know when you run top to look at what's running on your system, right? Yeah. But to do that and have it show what all the other systems are doing in terms of processor usage, so very oh, concise. Cool. And uh, you know, so that's not many people use that as well. But I've gotten really bad at like talking. I used to go to a lot more conferences and talk about things. Now I just don't bother anymore. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> so need to start marketing it. your. Uh your stuff yeah it just takes a lot of time and i'd rather go yeah. diving i think <laughs> um but um, so it's like a lightweight have you used the monit tool it's um, uh, yes, like it's uh, a, uh, yeah i use it because it's this has very good open bsd uh, it runs very good on open bsd it's like a lightweight yeah, ver version of that you could say or uh, yeah it's um i mean i've used most of them which is what i wrote uh, I wrote it in the first place. Uh, what I wanted, because a lot of the systems I had were rather offline, meaning they would they would not be always connected. They would always connect to the internet sometimes. So I wanted mm -hmm. them to monitor themselves and then be able to look at the history of that, you know, what they've been doing. But it was, I, I veered away in writing, in writing slant to simply show what was absolutely necessary for me to know and nothing else. So like, it's just, is this machine running? Is it, is it you know, is a number of processes going crazy? What's the CPU? What's the memory usage and disk usage? And that's it. So it really went the, the way of simplicity. And I think when most people write monitors or want to monitor the systems, they're very specific and wanting to know everything. I just want to know that machine is there, <laughs> basically. Uh, you know, there are too many, too many servers out there. I don't care whether the voltage on the CPU is 70 yeah, or 60. Yeah, yeah. I just want to know that the processor is not pegged at 100%. <laughs> so. Um, simplicity is key there, but um, no, that, that's, uh, I'm always happy to see what the next version of OpenBSD brings. It's always, uh, when that change log comes out, it's a very exciting day. Certainly, certainly. And if, if anybody is uh, visiting Malta and wants uh, some diving advice, have them, have them contact me and I'd be glad to uh, point them in the direction of the water and, and tell them what's out there. Cool, cool. I'll bring my bathing pants on. <laughs> You'll need them, especially it's getting colder. I mean, for me, it's, it's in the mid twenties right now in terms of temperature. So it's rather cold uh, as somebody who's spending time in, in Sweden, because it's not five degrees. I think you'll be okay. Good, good. Then I'm happy. <laughs> All right. So if, if people want to like uh, keep up uh, to date, uh, what you're doing, follow you, stalk you on the internet. How do they do that? Um, so if you like underwater photos, I post them uh, on my website. Basically, I'm, I come back from a dive and I'm super excited and I edit them and basically just do them immediately. And there's always, 
sea slugs. <laughs> if, you, if you really love sea slugs <laughs> or octopuses, because that's really all we have here. Um, in terms of the, 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 the open source stuff that I produce, and there's a fair amount that's kind of constantly being produced. Uh, a lot of that's mirrored on GitHub. So mm. people have issues. Uh, I get a lot of reports and, and patches and pools from GitHub. Sometimes people will mail me directly, but I think that's the way to, to follow these days the uh, development there. Right now I'm doing mostly commercial stuff, so I haven't done a lot of open source, but I think that's literally changing this week to go back into uh, OpenRed tool actually. Uh, we'll be seeing a lot of development. Nice. That's that. Uh, I do nice. know pe people use a lot of Markdown and stuff. Um, if you have neat, you know, if you have things you want to implement in Markdown, then by all means look at Lowdown. It's a very simple, nice, easy uh, code to read. I think it's one of the more accessible Markdown parsers. So you can always need people to work on it. So if you want to write C code and you, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of to-do lists that I have. <laughs> Is Lowdown being used by any static uh, page generator? I think quite a lot. Um, I get, I think that there are a fair number of people who use it. Um, it's always hard for me to tell actually. If, if somebody does not write to me and says, I they use this, I, don't, yeah. I just, I have no idea. But I do find out about things kind of, um, you know, in passing people will mention, oh, right, yeah, I use, I use this or I use that. Um, if, I mean, I would recommend to anybody if you use open source software and you like it, write the person who's maintaining it and tell them it's always they will actually feel better like probably a lot like you will make that person's day if they get an email that says oh, i use your software you know yeah. they'll feel good one of your tools that i'm using to solve a problem because on openbsd if you want the, uh, the http server to have reverse property support it doesn't have that mm. so i have a kcgi um, basically forwarding quests on a listening TCP socket to a past CGI socket. And then I have HTTPD forward it to, uh, to that FCGI or a CGI socket. So it's a kind of hackish way to get the reverse the first time I've heard of the HTTPD. <laughs> yeah. I think people use RelayD for that, but I, I don't use RelayD, so I don't really know. Uh, but you know, there you go. It's uh, KCGI is, it, it definitely shows that it's, it's been developed a lot over the course of over 10 years. I mean, I, I'm the parts of it that I, if I had my way and I will at some point, I've already actually started to change the names of a lot of functions to make them a little bit more accessible. Uh, but I would, I would basically not rewrite anything. I would leave everything as it is, but I would change all the names to be like a little bit, a little bit more, the function names would all be the same, uh, the variable names and structures to be a little bit more easy to read and stuff. Uh, I also know the KCGI can probably be sped up quite a lot. And I've just, for whatever reason, I've never done this and nobody's ever expressed that they want the help. But um, in the communication between the web application process and the KCGI parser for uh, key value pairs, that actual process could be simpl not simplified, made more complicated, but, uh, but optimized by having like, you know, frames instead of individual bytes being written back and forth and such. So there's, there's always work to be done, always. Certainly, totally. All right, we have covered- Is there, anything, yeah. is there anything you would want me to do in KCGI? Not on top of my head, but I will, uh, I will file a GitHub issue if uh, <laughs> something pops up. 
I'll be sure or to be as, as brusque as I always have. No. <laughs> Close. <laughs> no. It's my favorite response. No. Yeah, it's very productive. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a, you, you get old. I think GitHub, you, you know, it seems to be 50-50 where either people are really patching things and it's just out of nowhere I'll have, you know, this amazing patch that does great things. Or there's just people who are like, you know what I would like? I would like, and just some absurd feature that I'm never going to do and they're never going to do. Uh, it's like, it's, it's definitely a binomial where it's either one or the other. Um, so I, I have a tendency, at first I was like, you know, I'm not really interested in that feature. And by now it's just no. And, uh, and, I, and I'm, <laughs> I move on. I do feel badly though every time. I've picked up some weird pattern on filing GitHub issues where I'm like, I'll sit, I'll use like some weird kind of system or some weird library that like not a lot of people use and I use it for very specific things and then I end up making it not work and it's not documented. And then mm -hmm. I just, uh, you know, pull my hair and I'm like, ah, oh, this doesn't work. And I file a GitHub issue and then I get it to work like two minutes later and I'm like, <laughs> close. <laughs> and that happens like a couple of times a week, I think. <laughs> Because there's like so many like libraries or pieces of code that just lack good documentation or doesn't have yes. any documentation. It's such a big problem. And, and the, the thing is that most of the people, myself included, who write these libraries, right? Because probably, probably KCGI is one of those that you're talking about right now. Uh, <laughs> you just don't want to tell me. The, the, <laughs> the documentation for it is, it's so important. Uh, but as the developers often were so myopic, where we're so used to how this is supposed to run and what it does that we just don't think about communicating it to other people. So having documentation submissions, you know, pull requests or whatever is, I mean, it's a, it's, that's my favorite, I think, to get when people say, oh, I use this function, but it's not documented and here's the documentation for it. And this happens. I'm like, oh, I mean, it's, it's really great. Uh, as, as an example, there's a library I use called lib dive computer which I used to write some software to analyze my dive computer because I wanted to analyze my free diving to optimize mm -hmm. how long I'm on the bottom, which is written by uh, Dirk Hondel, and he, who works at Linus Torvalds, et cetera. So these are very, very talented engineers. Okay. But the functions were not documented. Uh, they were documented in header files, but there was no like, so I wrote man pages for, for all of them because I was implementing it. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to, I wanted to be able, I kept on like instinctively, I would run man, you know, this, yeah. Um, and, and they're still in use today. And it's, it, it's the best thing I think you can do. If you're using somebody's software and an answer to a question you have is not there, but it should be documented, then other people are asking the same question. You know, it's, it's always, always a good idea to send in these to, you know, the maintainer. So good. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, more documentation doesn't hurt, so to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because you can go too far, right? Naturally, uh, but but I do, you know, having having concise, it, it, everything should be explained quite nicely. I think, and it's it's all I can say, you know, in, in conclusion is that that's probably my favorite, and also the easiest to merge. Right? I don't really need to do any testing for it uh, when when people send documentation patches or fixes, because it shows that they're using it, which makes me feel good. Um, and that they've taken the time to do that. And now other people are not going to make the same mistakes. So really it, it's a good thing. And usually when I get a doc patch 
then often I end up being like, oh, do I have a regression test for this? So then a regression test gets written and it's, it's like, it's a snowball effect where the software just gets better and better every time. Yeah, that's very nice to have more and more people that look at it, more eyes on the, on the code, so to say. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. It was uh, really excited. I learned some things and uh, I hope you will, uh, I didn't scare you away. You will come back some, sometime in the future for a future episode. Just, just now there'll be more diving. That's, that's really all that's going to change probably. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Right, Any final closing take... remarks? Uh, not really. I mean, if people, if people are using, uh, or thinking of using BSD, then, then, uh, no, I, I guess, I guess it, it's a great community. It's a great community of people. That's really Certainly. all I gotta say. I've, I've been part of the, the BSD community as a user for, I don't even know, um, like I said, about 20 years, something like this, 15, 20 years, very rewarding. And I've met just some brilliant people who work in this field. Uh, so professionally, it's great because now you can kind of tap them if you need uh, people to do work. And it's just a, it's a really well-minded group of people. So it's very different if you're coming from the Linux or the, uh, the Microsoft world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people are like, because uh, the OpenBSD community has a bit of a stigma around it. A lot yeah, of people say like, okay, there are a lot of assholes here, but I, I haven't like found out. I've been an OpenBSD user for uh, not so long, maybe like uh, four or five years now. And like every time I have a question, I write, I write an email, post it on like the MISC mailing list. There's always like great response. And like, there's always like, instead of one person helping you out, it's like always like five people. Okay, here's different approaches on solving the problem. Yeah. Oh, I had the same problem. So I, I would say you have problems with OpenBSD, the MISC mailing list is really, really amazing. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's uh, whatever, whatever the media, whether it's a mailing list or going to a conference, that there is very strongly, you're right, uh, a lot of stigma against, not stigma, but um, there's like a perspective of, of OpenBSD community being, being very toxic. Unfortunately. And I guess if you're going to ask, you know, kind of uninformed questions, and that might be the case, there's very little tolerance for fools, uh, I would but guess, I again, as a, as a... In general, that's the... That's the approach. Like you go on, uh, you go on any mailing list, and you you be an asshole, and you you troll people. You're gonna get negative response, and that's uh, uh, yeah, that's you know, the same in life, you know. It, it's funny that as as a technical diver, this is a very similar community of technical divers, uh, mm. simply for the reason that if you make mistakes, you endanger other people's lives, not just your own. And uh, there's very little tolerance for for foolish behavior for people who are uh, aggressive or arrogant uh, there's a lot of pushback against that because again on the surface it doesn't matter but if you're down at 50 meters or, or 40 or, or 10 even it doesn't yeah. matter something is going wrong you're gonna other people are gonna depend upon you you're gonna depend upon other people and uh, and, and you know shabby equipment and not preparing properly will really endanger your life and the lives of those around you. So it's, it's very similar. So I'm very comfortable <laughs> in that after spending time in OpenBSD. You know, do your homework, take it seriously, and be humble. And, and you're... Thank you so much for this. And enjoy the rest right, of your thank day. Thank you. I will. Thank you for inviting me.